0: Book 1, Chapter 1, of The Octopus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Octopus, by Frank Norris, Book 1, Chapter 1, Part 1. Just after passing Caraher's Saloon on the county road that ran south from Bonneville and that divided the Broderson Ranch from that of Los Muertos, Presley was suddenly aware of the faint and prolonged blowing of a steam whistle that he knew must come from the railroad shops near the depot at Bonneville. In starting out from the ranch house that morning he had forgotten his watch and was now perplexed to know whether the whistle was blowing for 12 or for 1 o'clock he hoped the former. Early that morning he had decided to make a long excursion through the neighboring country, partly on foot and partly on his bicycle, and now noon was come already and as yet he had hardly started. As he was leaving the house after breakfast, Mrs. Derrick had asked him to go for the mail at Bonneville and he had not been able to refuse. He took a firmer hold of the cork grips of his handlebars, the road being in a wretched condition after the recent hauling of the crop, and quickened his pace. He told himself that no matter what the time was he would not stop for luncheon at the ranch house, but would push on to Guadalajara and have a Spanish dinner at Solitari's, as he had originally planned. There had not been much of a crop to haul that year. Half of the wheat on the Broderson ranch had failed entirely and Derrick himself had hardly raised more than enough to supply seed for the winter's sowing. But such little hauling as there had been had reduced the roads thereabouts to a lamentable condition, and during the dry season of the past few months the layer of dust had deepened and thickened to such an extent that more than once Presley was obliged to dismount and trudge along on foot, pushing his bicycle in front of him. It was the last half of September the very end of the dry season, and all Tulare County, all the vast reaches of the San Joaquin Valley, in fact all south-central California, was bone-dry, parched, and baked and crisped after four months of cloudless weather, when the day seemed always at noon, and the sun blazed white-hot over the valley from the coast range in the west to the foothills of the Sierras in the east. As Presley drew near to the point where what was known as the lower road struck off through the Rancho de los Muertos leading on to Guadalajara, he came upon one of the county watering tanks, a great iron-hooped tower of wood straddling clumsily on its four uprights by the roadside. Since the day of its completion, the storekeepers and retailers of Bonneville had painted their advertisements upon it. It was a landmark. In that reach of level fields, the white letters upon it could be read for miles. A watering trough stood nearby, and as he was very thirsty, Presley resolved to stop for a moment and get a drink. He drew abreast of the tank and halted there, leaning his bicycle against the fence. A couple of men in white overalls were repainting the surface of the tank, seated on swinging platforms that hung by hooks from the roof. They were painting a sign an advertisement it was all but finished and read s behrman real estate mortgages main street bonneville opposite the post office on the horse trough that stood in the shadow of the tank was another freshly painted inscription s behrman has something to say to you as presley straightened up after drinking from the faucet at one end of the horse trough the watering-cart itself labored into view around the turn of the lower road two mules and two horses white with dust strained leisurely in the traces moving at a snail's pace their limp ears marking the time while perched high upon the seat under a yellow cotton wagon umbrella presley recognized hooven one of derrick's tenants a german whom everyone called bismarck an excitable little man with a perpetual grievance and an endless flow of broken english hello bismarck said presley as hooven brought his team to a standstill by the tank preparatory to refilling you'st the man i look for mr presley cried the other twisting the reins around the brake Just one minute you wait eh? i'll not uh, talk with you presley was impatient to be on his way again a little more time wasted and the day would be lost he had nothing to do with the management of the ranch and if hooven wanted any advice from him it was so much breath wasted these uncouth brutes of farm hands and petty ranchers grimed with the soil they worked upon were odious to him beyond words never could he feel in sympathy with them nor with their lives their ways their marriages deaths bickerings and all the monotonous round of their sordid existence "'Well, you must be quick about it, Bismarck,' he answered sharply. "'I'm late for dinner as it is.' "'So, not two minutes, and uh, i be mit you.' He drew down the overhanging spout of the tank to the vent in the circumference of the cart, and pulled the chain that let out the water. Then he climbed down from the seat, jumping from the tire of the wheel, and taking Presley by the arm, led him a few steps down the road. "'Say,' he began. Say, I, I want to have some conversations with you. Just the man I want to see. Say, Carraher, he told me this morning, uh, say, he, he told me Mr. Derrick going to uh, farm the whole damn ranch himself the next year. No more tenants. Say, Carraher, he told me all the tenants get the sack. Mr. Derrick going to work the whole damn ranch himself, eh? Huh? Me? I get the sack also, eh? you have heave about the, those dosting uh, say me I, I have on the ranch uh, been uh, seven year, uh, seven year. Uh, do i also you'll have to see Derrick himself or harran about that bismarck interrupted presley trying to draw away that's something outside of me entirely but hooven was not to be put off no doubt he had been meditating his speech all the morning formulating his words preparing his phrases Say no, 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 no! He continued, "Me, I, I want to stay by their place uh, seven year. I have stay. Uh, Mister Derrick, he, he don't want that I should be gasacked. Who, who then uh, will the ditch contend? Uh, say you, you tell him uh, Bismarck have got a uh, sure stay by their place. Say you have to pull me the governor. You speak the good word for me." Harran is the man that has all the pull with his father, Bismarck,' answered Presley. "'You get Harran to speak for you, and you're all right.' "'Zeeb ja, I have stay,' protested Hooven. "'And who will der ditch get in, and all of them kettles drive?' "'Well, Haron's your man,' answered Presley, preparing to mount his bicycle. "'Say, you have fear about those things.' <laughs> "'I don't hear about anything, Bismarck. "'I don't know the first thing about how the ranch is run.' "'And the pipeline g'mind?' "'Hooven burst out, suddenly remembering a forgotten argument. "'He waved an arm. "'Ach, the pipeline be the mission girk and, and the waterhole for those kettles. "'Say, we don't do it uh, himself, perhaps, I don't think. "'Well, talk to Harran about it.' say he done uh, farm the whole damn ranch by hisself me I, I gotta stay but on a sudden the water in the cart gushed over the sides from the vent in the top with a smart sound of splashing hooven was forced to turn his attention to it presley got his wheel under way I, I have some conversations Smith heron hooven called after him he, he done do it uh, by himself then mr derrick ach no <laughs> "'I stay by the ranch to drive those kettles.' He climbed back to his seat under the wagon umbrella, and, as he started his team again with great cracks of his long whip, turned to the painter, still at work upon the sign, and declared with some defiance, "'Sieben Yes, sir, sieben I have been on this ranch. Get up, you mule, you hoop. Meanwhile Presley had turned into the lower road. He was now on Derrick's land, Division Number 1, or as it was called, the home ranch of the great Los Muertos Rancho. The road was better here, the dust laid after the passage of Hooven's watering cart, and in a few minutes he had come to the ranch house itself, with its white picket fence, its few flower beds, and grove of eucalyptus trees. On the lawn at the side of the house he saw Harran in the act of setting out the automatic sprinkler. In the shade of the house by the porch were two or three of the greyhounds part of the pack that were used to hunt down jack rabbits and godfrey harran's prized deerhound presley wheeled up the driveway and met harran by the horse block harran was magnus derrick's youngest son a very well-looking young fellow of twenty-three or twenty-five he had the fine carriage that marked his father and still further resembled him in that he had the derrick nose hawk-like and prominent, such as one sees in the later portraits of the Duke of Wellington. He was blond, and incessant exposure to the sun had, instead of tanning him brown, merely heightened the color of his cheeks. His yellow hair had a tendency to curl in a forward direction just in front of his ears. Beside him Presley made the sharpest of contrasts. Presley seemed to have come of a mixed origin, appeared to have a nature more composite, a temperament more complex unlike harran derrick he seemed more of a character than a type the sun had browned his face till it was almost swarthy his eyes were a dark brown and his forehead was the forehead of the intellectual wide and high with a certain unmistakable lift about it that argued education not only of himself but of his people before him the impression conveyed by his mouth and chin was that of a delicate and highly sensitive nature the lips thin and loosely shut together, the chin small and rather receding. One guessed that Presley's refinement had been gained only by a certain loss of strength. One expected to find him nervous, introspective, to discover that his mental life was not at all the result of impressions and sensations that came to him from without, but rather of thoughts and reflections germinating from within. Though morbidly sensitive to changes in his physical surroundings, he would be slow to act upon such sensations, would not prove impulsive, not because he was sluggish, but because he was merely irresolute. It could be foreseen that morally he was of that sort who avoid evil through good taste, lack of decision, and want of opportunity. His temperament was that of the poet. When he told himself he had been thinking, he deceived himself, he had on such occasions been only brooding some eighteen months before this time he had been threatened with consumption and taking advantage of a standing invitation on the part of magnus derrick had come to stay in the dry even climate of the san joaquin for an indefinite length of time he was thirty years old and had graduated and post graduated with high honors from an eastern college where he had devoted himself to a passionate study of literature and, more especially, of poetry. It was his insatiable ambition to write verse. But up to this time his work had been fugitive, ephemeral, a note here and there, heard, appreciated and forgotten. He was in search of a subject, something magnificent. He did not know exactly what, some vast, tremendous theme, heroic, terrible to be unrolled in all the thundering progression of hexameters. But whatever he wrote, and in whatever fashion, Presley was determined that his poem should be of the West, that world's frontier of romance, where a new race, a new people, hardy, brave and passionate, were building an empire, where the tumultuous life ran like fire from dawn to dark, and from dark to dawn again, primitive, brutal, honest and without fear something to his idea not much had been done to catch at that life in passing but its poet had not yet arisen the few sporadic attempts thus he told himself had only touched the keynote he strove for the diapason the great song that should embrace in itself a whole epoch a complete era the voice of an entire people wherein all people should be included they and their legends their folklore their fightings their loves and their lusts their blunt grim humor their stoicism under stress their adventures their treasures found in a day and gambled in a night their direct crude speech their generosity and cruelty their heroism and bestiality their religion and profanity their self-sacrifice and obscenity a true and fearless setting forth of a passing phase of history uncompromising sincere each group in its proper environment the valley the plain and the mountain the ranch the range and the mine all this all the traits and types of every community from the dakotas to the mexicos from winnipeg to guadalupe gathered together swept together welded and riven together in one single mighty song the song of the west that was what he dreamed while things without names thoughts for which no man had yet invented words terrible formless shapes vague figures colossal monstrous distorted whirled at a gallop through his imagination as Harran came up, Presley reached down into the pouches of the sun-bleached shooting coat he wore, and drew out and handed him the packet of letters and papers. "'Here's the mail. I think I shall go on.' "'But dinner is ready,' said Harran. "'We were just sitting down.' Presley shook his head. "'No, I'm in a hurry. Perhaps I shall have something to eat at Guadalajara. I shall be gone all day.' He delayed a few moments longer, tightening a loose nut on his forward wheel, while Harran, recognizing his father's handwriting on one of the envelopes, slit it open and cast his eyes rapidly over its pages. "'The governor is coming home,' he exclaimed. "'Tomorrow morning on the early train wants me to meet him with the team at Guadalajara, and,' he cried between his clenched teeth as he continued to read, "'we've lost the case.' "'What case?' "'Oh, in the matter of rates.' Harran nodded his eyes flashing his face growing suddenly scarlet ulstein gave his decision yesterday he continued reading from his father's letter he holds ulstein does that grain rates as low as the new figure would amount to confiscation of property and that on such a basis the railroad could not be operated at a legitimate profit as he is powerless to legislate in the matter he can only put the rates back at what they originally were before the commissioners made the cut and it is so ordered <laughs> that's our friend s behrman again added harran grinding his teeth he was up in the city the whole of the time the new schedule was being drawn and he and olstein and the railroad commission were as thick as thieves he has been up there all this last week, too, doing the railroad's dirty work, and backing Alstein up. Legitimate profit, legitimate profit, he broke out. Can we raise wheat at a legitimate profit, with a tariff of four dollars a ton for moving it 200 miles to Tidewater, with wheat at 87 cents? Why not hold us up with a gun in our faces and say hands up and be done with it? He dug his boot heel into the ground and turned away to the house abruptly, cursing under his breath. By the way, Presley called after him, Hooven wants to see you. He asked me about this idea of the governor's of getting along without the tenants this year. Hooven wants to stay to tend the ditch and look after the stock. I told him to see you. Harran, his mind full of other things, nodded to say he understood presley only waited till he had disappeared indoors so that he might not seem too indifferent to his trouble then remounting struck at once into a brisk pace and turning out from the carriage gate held on swiftly down the lower road going in the direction of guadalajara these matters these eternal fierce bickerings between the farmers of the san joaquin and the pacific and southwestern railroad irritated him and wearied him he cared for none of these things they did not belong to his world. In the picture of that huge, romantic west that he saw in his imagination, these dissensions were the one note of harsh color that refused to enter into the great scheme of harmony. It was material, sordid, deadly commonplace. But however he strove to shut his eyes to it, or his ears to it, the thing persisted and persisted. The romance seemed complete up to that point there it broke, there it failed, there it became realism, grim, unlovely, unyielding. To be true, and it was the first article of his creed to be unflinchingly true, he could not ignore it. All the noble poetry of the ranch, the valley, seemed in his mind to be marred and disfigured by the presence of certain immovable facts. Just what he wanted, Presley hardly knew, on one hand, it was his ambition to portray life as he saw it, directly, frankly, and through no medium of personality or temperament. But on the other hand, as well, he wished to see everything through a rose-colored mist, a mist that dulled all harsh outlines, all crude and violent colors. He told himself that as a part of the people, he loved the people, and sympathized with their hopes and fears and joys and griefs, and yet hooven, grimy and perspiring with his perpetual grievance and his contracted horizon, only revolted him. He had set himself the task of giving true, absolutely true, poetical expression to the life of the ranch, and yet again and again he brought up against the railroad that stubborn iron barrier against which his romance shattered itself to froth and disintegrated flying spume. His heart went out to the people, and his groping hand met that of a slovenly little Dutchman whom it was impossible to consider seriously. He searched for the true romance, and in the end found grain rates and unjust freight tariffs. "'But the stuff is here,' he muttered as he sent his wheel rumbling across the bridge over Broderson Creek. "'The romance, the real romance, is here somewhere. I'll get hold of it yet he shot a glance about him as if in search of the inspiration by now he was not quite halfway across the northern and narrowest corner of los muertos at this point some eight miles wide he was still on the home ranch a few miles to the south he could just make out the line of wire fence that separated it from the third division and to the north seen faint and blue through the haze and shimmer of the noon sun a long file of telegraph poles showed the line of the railroad and marked Derrick's northeast boundary. The road over which Presley was traveling ran almost diametrically straight in front of him, but at a great distance he could make out the giant live oak and the red roof of Hooven's barn that stood near it. All about him the country was flat. In all directions he could see for miles. The harvest was just over. Nothing but stubble remained on the ground. With the one exception of the live oak at Hooven's Place, there was nothing green in sight. The wheat stubble was of a dirty yellow, the ground parched, cracked, and dry of a cheerless brown. By the roadside the dust lay thick and gray, and on either hand, stretching on toward the horizon, losing itself in a mere smudge in the distance, ran the illimitable parallels of the wire fence. And that was all that and the burnt-out blue of the sky, and the steady shimmer of the heat. The silence was infinite. After the harvest, small though that harvest had been, the ranches seemed to sleep. It was as though the earth, after its period of reproduction, its pains of labor, had been delivered of the fruit of its loins, and now slept the sleep of exhaustion. It was the period between seasons when nothing was being done, when the natural forces seemed to hang suspended. There was no rain, there was no wind, there was no growth, no life. The very stubble had no force even to rot. The sun alone moved. Toward two o'clock Presley reached Hooven's place, two or three grimy frame buildings infested with a swarm of dogs. A hog or two wandered aimlessly about. Under a shed by the barn a broken-down cedar lay rusting to its ruin. But overhead a mammoth live oak, the largest tree in all the countryside, towered superb and magnificent. Gray bunches of mistletoe and festoons of trailing moss hung from its bark. From its lowest branch hung Hooven's meat-safe, a square box faced with wire screens. What gave a special interest to Hooven's was the fact that here was the intersection of the lower road and Derrick's main irrigating ditch, a vast trench not yet completed, which he and Annixter, who worked the Quinsabé ranch, were jointly constructing. It ran directly across the road and at right angles to it, and lay a deep groove in the field between Hooven's and the town of Guadalajara, some three miles further on besides this the ditch was a natural boundary between two divisions of the los muertos ranch the first and fourth presley now had the choice of two routes his objective point was the spring at the headwaters of broderson creek in the hills on the eastern side of the quinsabe ranch the trail afforded him a short cut thitherward as he passed the house mrs hooven came to the door her little daughter Hilda, dressed in uh, boys' overalls and clumsy boots at her skirts. Minna, her oldest daughter, a very pretty girl, whose love affairs were continually the talk of all Los Muertos, was visible through a window of the house, busy at the week's washing. Mrs. Hooven was a faded, colorless woman, middle-aged and commonplace, and offering not the least characteristic that would distinguish her from a thousand other women of her class and kind. She nodded to Presley, watching him with a stolid gaze from under her arm, which she held across her forehead to shade her eyes. But now Presley exerted himself in good earnest. His bicycle flew. He resolved that, after all, he would go to Guadalajara. He crossed the bridge over the irrigating ditch, with a brusque spurt of hollow sound, and shot forward down the last stretch of the lower road that yet intervened between Hoovens and the town. He was on the 4th Division of the ranch now, the only one whereon the wheat had been successful, no doubt because of the little mission creek that ran through it, but he no longer occupied himself with the landscape. His only concern was to get on as fast as possible. He had looked forward to spending nearly the whole day on the crest of the wooded hills in the northern corner of the Kinsabe ranch, reading, idling, smoking his pipe, but now he would do well if he arrived there by the middle of the afternoon in a few moments he had reached the line fence that marked the limits of the ranch here were the railroad tracks and just beyond a huddled mass of roofs with here and there an adobe house on its outskirts the little town of guadalajara nearer at hand and directly in front of presley were the freight and passenger depots of the p and sw painted in the gray and white which seemed to be the official colors of all the buildings owned by the corporation. The station was deserted. No trains passed at this hour. From the direction of the ticket window Presley heard the unsteady chittering of a telegraph key. In the shadow of one of the baggage trucks upon the platform, the great yellow cat that belonged to the agent dozed complacently, her paws tucked under her body. Three flat cars loaded with bright painted farming machines were on the siding above the station, while on the switch below a huge freight engine that lacked its cowcatcher sat back upon its monstrous driving wheels, motionless, solid, drawing long breaths that were punctuated by the subdued sound of its steam pump clicking at exact intervals. End of Book One Chapter one Part 1.